This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville Public Radio. And coming up tonight, the power of storytelling. I believe if you know someone's story, there's no way you can dislike them. We'll learn about Story Slam, a unique storytelling event happening at the Princess Theater this Sunday. We'll also hear how storytelling intersects with history as Huntsville prepares to unveil a new historical marker. They believed that Alabama's 1901 Constitution, that even if women got the right to vote, that that 1901 Constitution would keep black women from registering. And they were largely right. We'll hear about storytelling through dance and music and get some live storytelling tips from the master herself, Katherine Tucker Wyndham. Different pictures painted in everybody's head, different memories stood. Because that's what storytelling does. It stores memories and it reminds us that life is important and exciting. The Public Radio Hour is next. This is the Public Radio Hour, our weekly mix of special programs, community conversations, and homemade radio features. Produced in the studios of listener-supported WLRH 89.3 Huntsville. I'm your host, Brett Tannehill. In the next hour, we'll explore the power of storytelling in a variety of forms, through music and dance as Huntsville Ballet presents Carnival of the Animals this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We'll take a musical animal identification challenge with Morning Blend host Dory Nutt. We'll also hear about a live storytelling challenge that you can engage in or just watch this Sunday at the Princess Theater in downtown Decatur called Story Slam. Master storyteller Catherine Tucker Wyndham gives us all some sage advice and tricks of the trade at the end of the show. But we'll start by thinking about the importance of storytelling in a historical context, as it harkens back to the original intent of storytelling, to remember stories and lessons of the past. This Sunday, the Historic Huntsville Foundation will help dedicate a new historical marker that will remind us all that it wasn't so long ago when voting in America excluded many people, more specifically women and minorities. It's also a reminder that we still have a long way to go, and there's no guarantee we won't slip backwards in the wrong direction. Producer Katie Ganaway talked with Donna Castellano to find out more. It's been more than 101 years since American women gained the right to vote through the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Due to racist language in the 1901 Alabama Constitution, women of color were largely not included in this gigantic step forward for women in history. Donna Castellano with the Historic Huntsville Foundation says while researching for their Places Where Women Made History program, some foundation members were surprised to find documentation of six black women in Huntsville who successfully gained their right to vote. We saw the article in the newspaper in the Huntsville Times that reported that 1,300 white women had registered to vote and six black women, and we had to know who those six black women were. Mm -hmm. So we found their names by going through voter registration records from the 1920s and seeing who had registered in 1920, their race, because they recorded them as COL for colored and then going back and pulling their names out. And so when we got this and began to realize who these women were and why what they did was so important, we realized we had to have a historic marker recognizing them. Um, And in fact, Huntsville is the first city in the state of Alabama uh, to place a historic marker recognizing black suffragists for their contributions to our history. And can you give us, do you have a list of those uh, women of, of course I do. Okay. Um, Mary Wood Benford, Ellen Scruggs Brandon, India Leslie Herndon, Lou Bertha Johnson, Dora Fackler Lowry, and Celia Horton Love McCrary. And I can tell you about each one of them if you would like. <laughs> Let, let's pick a few. Okay. Uh, yes. So the the one that I found the most that, that grabbed me first, and it's okay. like, oh my God, this is going to be absolutely wonderful, is Mary Wood Benford. Okay. Uh, Mary Wood Benford was born in Montgomery, Alabama. All of these women were the daughters and granddaughters of enslaved people. Mm-hmm. So keep Keep that in mind as you listen to what these women accomplished throughout their lives. So they're coming out of an environment with their family where they had never known slavery, but their parents and grandparents had been enslaved. Mm-hmm. And there's this window of freedom and opportunity in Alabama for a brief period of time where black people have the freedom and the political uh, rights to actually experience independence, to understand what that means and to begin working on it. So Mary Wood was 
the daughter of a brick mason in Montgomery, Alabama. He sent his daughter, he and his wife sent his daughter to Howard University in Washington, D.C., and she graduated with a degree from the normal school, which is teacher training, in 1897. That was very rare for a black woman to have a degree at that time in history. Um, while there, we think that she must have met uh, Henry uh, C. Benford, Jr., who was part of the very prominent Benford family in Huntsville. And at some point, they fell in love and married and came back to Huntsville. And he was also an educator. Um, he taught at schools in Baltimore, but came back to Huntsville to be the principal of William Hooper Council School. And I think that while Mary was at Howard University, there was a movement that began among black women to begin to organize politically and socially in order to advance the, the black race's uh, freedoms and liberties, you know, to advance mm-hmm. on, on, on behalf of themselves. And suffrage was one of their goals that they wanted. And women's suffrage was one of their goals. I'm assuming, I guess, the dedication site was chosen based on that fact you just told us. One of the, the common attributes that the women had is three of them actually taught at that school. At William Hooper Council. Three mm-hmm. taught at William Hooper um, Council School. One, Celia Horton Love McCrary, donated the land for a Rosenwall School, the Silver Hill Rosenwall School, which was on land that was uh, now owned by Redstone Arsenal. And so she also has a huge philanthropic background that promoted education among the black community. And then the other two had attended school there. So we thought that that was a site that connected the six women enough to where that was a logical place for it to go. Before these women sought the right to, these six black suffragists sought the right to vote, um, women were already gathering together at the YMCA building here in Huntsville. Can you talk a little bit more about that and if those six black women you've mentioned were involved in that process? Uh, the, the the women's suffrage movement in, in Alabama and really throughout the South was not integrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a segregated movement. And in fact, one of the characteristics of Huntsville's white suffragists um, was that they didn't see that black women should necessarily have a role in voting. Mm-hmm. And they believed that Alabama's 1901 constitution, that even if women got the right to vote, that that 1901 constitution would keep black women from registering. And they were largely right. There are records that historians state that either between 100 to 200,000 Alabama women registered for the right to vote. Fewer than 200 of those were black women. And that is directly because of that 1901 Constitution. So you could have a white suffrage movement, and they had Uh, an agenda that was very forward-thinking in terms of of education, money for education, getting kids out of steel mills and uh, factories and getting them into school. But racial equality was not part of the white suffrage movement agenda. Not in Alabama. Mm -hmm. No, not in Alabama. So that's another thing that really distinguishes these women is that they met those requirements for that 1901 Constitution. They owned property. They could pass a literacy test, and they had the money for a poll tax. They obviously weren't intimidated. And when they went, they weren't just standing up to county registrars. They were also standing up to a system of government that had denied them civil and political rights since our nation's inception. So they were very strong women who were standing up for themselves and also the larger black community. Can we talk about their relationship with each other, how they came to gather at the the steps of the Madison County Courthouse and go forth, you know, and (laughs) Try, try to get their voting rights. So, uh, one of the, an, aside from having a connection to William Hooper Council High School, mm-hmm. I think that the really thing that connects these women is they were all members of Lakeside Methodist Church. Mm-hmm. Lakeside Methodist was really the hub of, uh, after the war, Huntsville's a black community for the intellectual, culture, political life. Six of nine elected black men uh, who served for the city, uh, they were elected uh, and served in city government, were members of Lakeside Methodist Church. So, there's a a, a legacy there of political and community service. And so, you know, we don't know what those women did the day that they decided to go register to vote. In fact, one of the interesting things about this is that the family members that we contacted of these women, once we found their names, none of them knew their grandmother's stories. None of them. It was something that they did, and the significance of that was sort of lost to to family history. Um, So we assume that they got up one morning and probably put on their hat and their gloves and took their pocketbook with them, put their property 
tax receipt in that pocketbook in the dollar and a half for property taxes for their poll taxes and march themselves up to the, the registrar's office and said, I'm here to register to vote. We'll never know how many women tried to do that and were turned away or how many women, both black and white, were too afraid to do that because they knew that they couldn't meet those qualifications. So, so is there any information on the sort of hurdles that they faced trying to register? No, we have, there is evidence like that does not exist. The phrase, in my reading, the phrase lifting as we climb came up a lot. And yes. I, I would like you to explain uh, the significance of that to this story that we're sort of getting a look at from the Historic Huntsville Foundation. So the way that we found the women was going through the voter rolls in, in the, of the Madison County probate records and seeing that there were First, we sorted for the date, 1920, the date that people registered. Then we sorted for race, and colored women, black women, were designated with COL, which, of, of course, is the way that they were referred to in 1920. And so then we got the names of the women. And then lifting as we climb is a very inspirational, and it really speaks to the condition of the black community at this point in time, coming out of enslavement and trying to to, to establish themselves as a as an independent community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so lifting as as we climb was associated with Mary Church Durrell when she founded the National Association of Colored Women in 1896. There were a group of black women who met in Washington D.C. and we believe that Mary. Wood Benford would have at least known about this event in in the black community where they came up with a plan or a protocol of how to empower themselves and how to empower their community. And so lifting as we climb refers to the fact that we both have to lift ourselves up as we climb, but also bring others up with us. And so you sort of see that when we go back and we look at the six women that we're honoring on October the 24th, they had that mentality. They became educators. So they they established themselves with a profession, but they also went back and taught because the way that you climb is through education. And if you want to help someone achieve success within that community, it is you become a teacher and give other people those opportunities. Some of the women, uh, they and their families own businesses. Lou Bertha Johnson, she and her family opened a cleaning shop, and they eventually had a very successful uh, Grand Shine Parlor, which, in fact, uh, the building that they built on Franklin Avenue, 801 Franklin, still stands. I mean, some of us remember it as a restaurant or it's been a brew pub, and the past 10 years. I wonder, are there, are there any other traces of, of these businesses that these ladies established by themselves or with their husbands? Um, there are photographs, okay. but that's there is a disparity between the way that the history of black Huntsvillians has been mm-hmm. preserved versus the way that, that white Huntsvillians have been. Can you expand on that? Um, yes. So when Huntsville began to grow in the 1950s and 60s after uh, World War II, when Redstone Arsenal came in, there was an urban revival plan that was created. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Huntsville had a lot of people come in and they needed space. And so they designated areas for new growth. And so a lot of the community that was associated with the black community uh, is places now where the, the uh, CBB is on that land. You know, William Hooper Council School, the library, uh, Marywood Benford, their house was just to the north of the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library. Oh. Um, and so when the preservation movement was starting in the 1960s and 1970s, where it was and the way that it understood history at that time, it didn't see those black spaces as important as the white history that they were trying to preserve. That is changing. And so Historic Huntsville Foundation and the city of Huntsville are consciously going out now and designated areas associated with black history and with black Huntsvillians as historic sites. And that's one of the things that we're doing here, not only through this marker dedication, but as I mentioned to you, that we have a coloring book that we're introducing that will be given away at the marker dedication. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to show those places where Huntsville women made history, where black women made history, and very few places, uh, none of those places are in fact standing. Um, So you have to go back and you have to recreate that and it makes it more important to identify the places that do exist uh, and to tie that into a larger narrative of Huntsville history particularly when it relates to preservation. Mm-hmm. And Donna in your research what is so important about preserving this history of six black suffragists 
that are going to be honored at this dedication on October 24th? I think the question is actually larger than that. It's not okay. just preserving the history of these six black women. I think it's preserving the history of that community that developed in the aftermath of the Civil War and developed through the Civil Rights Movement beyond. You know, these women were not, uh, they didn't just spring up out of nowhere. They right. were a product of something that was very vibrant and very successful in, in an environment that did not encourage or support them at all. Mm-hmm. They were doing this in an era of Jim Crow laws, of where racial legal discrimination was upheld by the Supreme Court of the United States. Mm-hmm. And so Huntsville has many places associated with this history. And you can go around now and you can mark it. We have places that are standing that are associated with this history, with what the black community was doing during this period of time. And it's very important that we learn this history, look at it within a broader context, and start identifying these places and celebrating all of Huntsville's history. If we don't do that, we're distorting the way that our city developed. And that's the shame. We will distort Alabama history and we will distort Huntsville history unless we integrate these narratives back into our larger stories. Does Historic Huntsville Foundation have future plans to further preserve black history here in Huntsville? Yes, we do. Yes, we absolutely do. The way that we tend to do that is through listing things on the National Register of Historic Places and educational programs because we walk past history, we drive past history. I saw your eyes light up when I mentioned the building at 801 Franklin. Everyone that I've said that to, they're like, oh, I didn't know that that was built by a black family. You know, that that is something that we have to elevate so that people understand and recognize it. The city of Huntsville had a grant recently where we're going to survey the Magnolia Terrace neighborhood, which is um, off of Pulaski Pike between Holmes Avenue and University. Many of the, the, the suffragists lived in that neighborhood. Their houses are no longer standing, but there are a lot of important sites in that neighborhood that relate to and refer back to that black community that was so vibrant during that period of time. Mm-hmm. One of those houses, in fact, is owned by Dr. Harold Drake, who was the first black physician who had admitting privileges at Huntsville Hospital. You drive past that house all the time. It's this wonderful colonial that sits up on the hill. You know, that's a significant site for Huntsville's black history for Huntsville history. The dedication will take place at William Hooper Council Memorial Park in Huntsville on October 24th. Donna says Huntsville will be the first city in Alabama to place an historic marker to recognize black suffragists for their contributions to our history. HistoricHuntsville.org has lots more info on this upcoming event and on their efforts to preserve black history in our community. This is 89.3 Huntsville. That was Katie Ganaway talking with Historic Huntsville Foundation's Donna Castellano about a historical marker dedication happening this Sunday at 2 p.m. in William Hooper Council High Memorial Park on St. Clair Avenue in Huntsville. The marker helps us remember six of Huntsville's African-American women and other women across Alabama as they fought for their right to vote following the ratification of the 19th Amendment back in 1920. 1920, hmm. How far have we come in a hundred years? This is the Public Radio Hour, our weekly mix of special programs, community conversations, and homemade radio features. Storytelling is a critical component of remembering history, but it manifests in many, many other ways as well, including through music and dance. This weekend, you can hear it for yourself as the Huntsville Ballet presents a carnival of animals. Last week, choreographer Stephanie Brawley Butcher stopped by to talk with Morning Blend host Dory Nutt about the performance. We'll jump into the middle of their conversation, and the music you are hearing was created to evoke images of a certain animal. Listen closely and try to guess which one. Did everyone guess the animal musically described here by Camille Saisons in his Carnival of the Animals? What was that, Stephanie? It was the tortoise, yes. It's a really, really great piece. 
there's two dancers dancing it. And um, I'm not going to tell you how they look like tortoises, but it's very inventive um, and creative how the choreographer has taken the movement and added a little specialty what should I say? Not an instrument, but a specialty. You'll just have to come and see what it is. I can't wait. Yes. I can't wait. Who did the choreography for this piece? Uh, I believe Philip Otto did the choreography for this piece, yes. Okay. It always gives me a chuckle amongst all the animals portrayed here. We have the swan, the elephant, mm-hmm. etc. One of the movements is about pianist. As if they're animals. (laughs) I always get a laugh out of that. And I just can't wait to see this. If you're just joining me, I'm Dory Nutt, your morning blend host today. And I'm chatting with Stephanie Brawley, Butcher of the Huntsville Ballet Company. We're talking about the upcoming Unplugged concert, which opens Huntsville Ballet's season this weekend. And Stephanie, you mentioned that in this series, you like to introduce contemporary dance to audiences. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about Mortal Virtue, the new work by Huntsville Ballet's director, Phil Otto. It is an absolutely stunning piece. I have gotten to sit in on several rehearsals, and it is just choreography that is effortless. Philip, I believe, described it as the dancers are moving like water. So it's very fluid. And in watching rehearsals, what I've noticed is the relationship between the four dancers that are in this piece. It's not only stunning technically and choreographically, but they also really take time to have a relationship on stage when they look at each other or a certain step will take them to a new space on the stage and there's a reason why. And so there's an emotional component to that as well, not just the steps and the music. You get this threefold choreographic experience. I've read a little blurb that Phil wrote about this. He said that the dancers bring wordless interpretation of the beats, of mm-hmm. the soft strings, in a way that the audience can understand no matter what language they speak. Mm-hmm. And he said, in that way, dance isn't simply movement, but the most honest form of communication he knows. Yes. Well, that sounds just stunning. Let's listen to a portion of the music that this dance is set to. Here's a, just a little bit of Dvorak's String Quartet Number no. 10 in E-flat, Opus 51. We've been listening to a little bit of Dvorak's String Quartet Number no. 10, one of the musical works featured in Huntsville Ballet's Unplugged series coming up October 22nd through 24th at the Dream Theater on Holmes Avenue. Stephanie Brawley Butcher is my guest here in the studio, here to tell us about this eclectic presentation. Now, there is one other work on the program, and you are the choreographer, Stephanie. Why don't you tell us about that? I'm very excited to be doing this work for Huntsville Ballet Company. It's like coming back home after teaching so long away in the school system at the Grissom Dance Program. They asked me if I would be interested and I jumped at the chance. I'm just really excited to be working with these fabulous dancers and this music is uh, something I had choreographed before and so I've kind of reworked it and collaborated with the dancers to really make what I think is a beautiful piece. Uh, Very exciting. It has three movements and it really really is about the authenticity of movement. There's no story. It's about being unconfined, unrestrained, no limits, letting go. 
just abandonment, basically. And, you know, there's a couple of times I'd be like, okay, let's try this. And what do y'all think about this? And their eyes would get as big as saucers. But they're used to me now. They're they're <laughs> like, oh, okay, yeah, 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 we can try that. I think I terrified them at first. But I just love movement and what it can say and how it can speak to an audience. And being live, there's nothing like live theater, live dance, live music. We were talking about the threefold component of Philip's work earlier, and I think there is this fourth element when you're live. You know, when it's videoed, there's a screen, there's 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 a blockage there. And so you're not feeling the energy of the musicians or the dancers or the actors. But when you're in the theater, it's all encompassing. And so this piece is real special to me. It is dedicated to my dancers from Grissom High School. I choreographed the first movement of this several years ago on my Images Dance Ensemble Company. And I extended it for Huntsville Ballet Company to the three movements. So it ends just very, it just doesn't stop. I'm glad I'm not dancing it. <laughs> I was going to say, it's for young dancers. You said you were inspired yes. by the young dancers Absolutely. you taught. They yeah. just, they have no limits. They're they're willing to try things. Um, a lot of people have said, you know, my head is a very scary place to be. I have to agree with them. <laughs> I've been told I have, you know, I'll say, oh, I've got a vision. I've got a vision. And everybody just kind of cringes. But yeah, I just love art. I love dance. I love theater. I love the creative process. And I think it's a collaborative experience experience for both either choreographer, director, dancers, actors, um, you're all in it together. Mm -hmm. And it says something about, you know, the situation we're in with the pandemic and where our country has been with all of that and how, you know, we've got to experience all of this together and be authentic and really push forward to see what's next. And when you do that, you will bring the audience right into yes, it as well. That's the hope. <laughs> it, it needs to be experienced live. Yes, it does. Well, Stephanie, I read that you've spent years teaching dance, mm-hmm. you said. Do you have a particular moment in your teaching that, that just gives you a warm feeling whenever you remember it? I mean, you probably have lots of those, but mm. any one that you would oh, care gosh. to recount? There are so many. I always say that the kids teach me more than I teach them. They're truly inspiring young people. And it makes me feel better about, you know, where the world is going. (laughs) They're good people. The biggest thing, I think, was my third year, there was a little girl who was very, very shy. It was only my third year in building the dance program at Grissom High School. And she was very, very shy and would not perform the first semester. (laughs) And she learned everything. She just was like, I'm just I'm just too scared. I can't dance in front of people. And then her second second semester, she was like, Well, I want to try it. I said, Okay, you know, if you get uncomfortable, I can I will modify, we'll work you in an exit, you know. And watching her face that fear, watching her overcome that and then blossom. And she carried that into other areas of her life. She ended up dancing with me for four years. She ended up in, I believe, uh, my Company 2 program. And they tried to get rid of my program at the end of that year. And so when we went to the board meeting, she was there with her Grissom dance shirt on, totally out of character, spoke in front of the board, you know. And so it was just like, okay, well... Wow. You know, just having a dance class has taken this kid from being this shy, wouldn't say two words to being able to get up in front of Board of Education and the superintendent and speak passionately about what she loved and what she believed in. So that really I think about that sometimes when I get down or when I get frustrated, you know, I'm like, okay. You don't always see the benefits of teaching right away, but they are there. Mm-hmm. And um, teachers have been through it the past couple <laughs> oh, of years. I can't even um, imagine. Yeah, <laughs> they are the unsung heroes of, they really are the unsung heroes of this pandemic. But yeah, she was just a dear, and I still keep in contact with her, you know, thank goodness for Facebook. Right. Um, but she just, I just watched her blossom. And that's happened with so many kids. Mm-hmm. They just, they find their voice. And right. that's really the biggest part. And that's why the arts are so important. That's why the dance studios are so important. And community theater and art in all schools is so important. 
these kids have got to find their voice. They've got to get off their phones. They've got to get off the computers. And finding their voice, helping kids find their voice, whatever that voice is, they need to find their voice. That's inspiring, Stephanie. Thank you. You know, I heard an interview, I guess, Saturday on NPR, where mm-hmm. I hear a lot of things. Yes. Scott Simon was talking to the author, Amr Tolls, who wrote Gentleman in Moscow, and mm-hmm. he has a new book out, and they were talking about that. But Scott Simon asked Amr Tolls if he worried about young people today with the type of entertainment mm-hmm. a lot of them get into you know it's just looking at quick things on their yes. phones and Amr Toll said you know over time we've learned that things like landscape painting symphonies take time to create time to consume mm-hmm. you have to work at it a little bit and he said I'm a little bit worried about people today that take things that are created in such short burst and consumed just mm-hmm. immediately and and tossed aside he said i i hope people will take time mm-hmm. to go to the effort to go to concerts go to a ballet yes. go to an art museum and and stand and mm-hmm. look for a while it's yeah. a process and i think you know i i've always taught my dancers and actors it's a process it's not about the product is mm-hmm. about the process because that's the journey. And so the audience and society needs to take that journey with us and validate what we're doing on stage and what the artists are drawing and what the musicians are creating. We need to validate that and we need to be present in that moment mm-hmm. because if we're not, it's all going to be gone and I really don't know what we're going to be left with without art. I'm sure you will have a full hall there to watch this ballet. <laughs> it sounds just wonderful, the Unplugged series. And it's been delightful talking to you about your passion for dance and your Thank students, you. about this whole Unplugged series presented by Huntsville Ballet Company. Would you like to give us all the specific details about yes, tickets and where to go and when to go? Well, we're performing at the beautiful and fabulous Dream Theater, which is on Holmes Avenue. All the tickets are available at www.huntsvilleballet.org. If you need any more information, you can always call Huntsville Ballet at 256-539-0961. Again, the dates are October 22nd through the 24th. There's a Friday night performance at 7, Saturday afternoon at 2, another performance Saturday night at 7. So if you're done watching your football game in the afternoon, (laughs) you can come to the ballet that night or vice versa. Exactly. And then if you've got games all day, we have another performance on Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which is perfect for the little ones, either the 2 or the 3. And parking is free at this venue. And we just hope everyone comes out and supports all the wonderful art that has been created, the dancers, the lighting designers, everything, everybody that has collaborated for this beautiful performance. Well, Stephanie, I can't wait to experience your piece, Unconfined Images, along with Mortal Virtue and Carnival of the Animals, all presented as part of Huntsville Ballet's Unplugged series that opens your season. I thank you so much for stopping by to chat with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And we'll wrap up with that peppy, upbeat music by Carl Jenkins. This is going to put a spring in everybody's step. <laughs> yes. Thanks to Dory Nutt and choreographer Stephanie Briley Butcher. They were talking about Huntsville Ballet's season opening presentation of A Carnival of the Animals this weekend at the Dream Theater located on the Huntsville campus of the Rock Family Worship Center on Holmes Avenue. You can find their full conversation on our website at wlrh.org, where you can also find a podcast of this show. You can also find more information about A Carnival of the Animals and the rest of Huntsville Ballet's season at huntsvilleballet.org. This is the Public Radio Hour, our weekly mix of special programs, community conversations, and homemade radio features. Produced in the studios of listener-supported 89.3 WLRH. I'm your host, Brett Tannehill. We've talked about storytelling in history, in music and dance, but in its most basic form and function, storytelling is just a person standing in front of other people and letting the words spill forth from their memories and imagination. It happens every day, all the time. A universe of millions and millions of stories traded back and forth across the planet between people and probably also between other living things. This Sunday at the Princess Theater, you can see and even participate in a live storytelling event called Story Slam. Melissa Ford Thornton sat down to tell me all about it. 
Melissa, growing up, who were some of the good storytellers in your life that you heard? And what was compelling about the, the way that they told stories? Well, we were just talking about Catherine Tucker Wyndham and just her southern, um, beautiful, um, melodic way of telling a story, but also drawing you in and creating the scene. You know, when I listen to one of her stories, I'm there. And also, I, I read a lot, and it's, you know, some of the um, writers who are very good storytellers, you know, I think of Flannery O'Connor and, you know, some of the Southern Renaissance people. So, uh, you know, I love their stories as well. One of the important things that uh, Miss Wyndham taught me when I was recording her stories was about the silence in the story. She always made a point of, uh, saying that that is part of the story, you know, how people sort of, they some people shy away from the silence. And to her, that was one of the really important parts of live storytelling was to have that pause where it sort of hangs there for a minute. I see what you did there. Ah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did. Uh, but, uh, but you've had your own progression as a storyteller. Let's talk about that a little bit. You're one of uh, the Sundial writers here at WLRH. You had a podcast about mental health uh, wellness. Um, and you've done some live storytelling events as well. You're no slouch yourself, Melissa oh, Fort Thornton. Thank you very so much. So talk about how you have kind of come up and learned how to do uh, live storytelling uh, and that sort of thing. Well, um, first of all, I think my very first um, story was actually on, well, it was an interview with WLRH way back in the day when I was uh, 17. I won wow. um, one of the writers in the um, Huntsville Literary Association. You know, it was a short story award. So those awards that come around every year. <laughs> that, and you now I got to be a judge. Winner, huh? I was a young writer's winner. Amazing. So I got wow. to share my story Super when cool. it was it was a lot of fun. And I realized then how fun radio is because nobody has to look at me while I'm <laughs> talking. So that was that was cool. And then when I uh, started traveling and getting a little older, um, I had uncles and living in Costa Rica and just some cool things that I thought, oh, this makes a story. You know, it's stuff we talk about at home. So I submitted here to Sundial and Judy Waters. And um, back in the day, you know, she was hostess of, with the mostess on the air. And so I just started telling stories back then. So it was it was a lot of fun. But I've also lived in Nashville shortly. Um, and when I was there, they had, uh, let's see, it's called 10 by 9 Storytelling Nashville. And it's actually an Irish kind of tradition mm -hmm. so they're great storytellers over there and uh and i got to do that at douglas corner which is a really cool little songwriter stop you know it's this it's not there now it, was, it lost itself you know in the midst of this pandemic so that's sad that that's closing but that was every monday night so i'd go listen to stories and then share a few and that was a lot of fun and then i actually would go to the moth which was in nashville and uh listened to some stories and threw my name in the hat. And, you know, I'm so captivated by the stories. They do five tellers and then an intermission. And I was like the eighth, and I didn't expect to be called. And I was so captivated by the storytellers. And then that, suddenly you're like, oh, oh, it's me. It's me. Uh, yes. <laughs> so that may have been good. I wasn't nervous, but I actually won the um, story slam that, that month. So I got to be in their grand slam, which was a lot of fun. One of the places I've learned the most about storytelling is arc stories, which um, they're down in Birmingham, mm -hmm. and they're just a fabulous storytelling, but they actually do provide you with a story coach. They do curated shows, so if there's a theme you submit, they decide if they're going to put it in there so they can progress from, you know, really poignant to really funny or, you know, whatever their uh, story arc is for the evening. And you get assigned a story coach, and they do rehearsals. And you were talking about the pause. One of the things that one of the storytellers there taught me was he said the best stories are when you have the pause, just like in music, and people lean forward. If they lean forward right. instead of chatting with somebody or get up to go get popcorn, then that's a problem. <laughs> They're getting sucked into the story, yes. literally. Yeah. Yes. So uh, obviously, public radio fans uh, understand the, the relevance and the importance of the storytelling tradition in public radio. What is it about the power of storytelling that strikes you? Why is it important? I believe if you know someone's story, there's no way you can dislike them completely. <laughs> and that's so important in these, these times. Uh, it, it always has been. But 
I can learn something from anybody. And when I hear their story, their lived experience, it moves me and I want to know more about their background and maybe they want to know more about mine. It just creates um, a conversation and a connection in a world that seems very remote and distant, especially right now. So we're going to go back and talk about some of the other great things happening at the Princess Theater. We're talking with Melissa Ford Thornton from the Princess Theater here on the Public Radio Hour. But first, Melissa, let's talk about an event called Story Slam that's coming up this Sunday, October 24th. Doors open at 1, the show starts at 2, and this is a live storytelling challenge where people are invited to the stage to tell their own stories under the theme of Bridges. Uh, Sundial Writers Corner producer and Morning Blend host Dory Nutt and myself will be on a panel watching the performances. And Melissa, so here's how I understand how this works. Mm -hmm. If you're interested in giving this thing a shot, so come prepared to the Princess Theater this Sunday. Uh, No notes. In five minutes, you will be prepared to tell a true story on the stage. Hopeful storytellers will place their name in a hat, so to speak, and then 10 people get randomly drawn to share their stories. So you show up. You're not sure if you'll make it on stage. Absolutely. It'll be very impromptu and very live, so to speak. Uh, so, And the stories are intended to create connection and celebrate diversity. So Story Slam this Sunday, this is a, an intriguing idea. How is this going to work? Well, I hope that it'll just be a lot of fun. I have friends who um, like storytelling themselves, but they're also just want to be an audience for this. And when we talk about bridges, we came up with that theme. I think Tim Miller and I kind of threw it around, and he's going to emcee the event. Anyway, we threw out the theme of bridges because um, it can be literal or figurative. Um, I had one lady call me about this. She'd seen it on the website and said, am I too old to tell a story? And we're like, no, not at all. You know, this is for all ages, 16 and up, just because some of it might be kind of tough life stuff. Um, Don't know what the stories will be. But she said, I've burned a lot of bridges in my life, and I want to tell that story. (laughs) And I said, okay, that sounds interesting. So the bridges theme can really tie to most uh, a number of different things. Exactly. Literal, figurative, trying to create a bridge. Are you afraid of crossing bridges? I think I told a sundial story about literal being afraid of crossing a bridge Uh yeah so a story slam happening this sunday but as i mentioned all sorts of other amazing things i'm going to attempt to run through the litany of amazing events happening (laughs) so uh we're talking here on the public radio hour it's uh, thursday october 21st Tomorrow, Friday, October 22nd, you have a film series that's been going on. Uh, Tomorrow night's feature is a fun, family-friendly movie called Hocus Pocus. Then this Saturday, I want you to talk about this a little bit, Evil Cheese Production is bringing a show called Beware of the Rook. That's this (laughs) Saturday. What is Beware of the Rook? Beware the Rook is an original um, screenplay written by Wayne Miller. He and his wife, Tanya, are fabulous actors, very uh, funny, and um, they've brought Evil Cheese Productions used to be in the Lowry House here in Huntsville, and they're moving to different stages now. They're starting to uh, to tour a little bit around Alabama, and we were very excited that they wanted to come to the Princess. So um, they did a show last fall, or earlier in the fall, and it was a hit. People, people loved the humor. They loved the intrigue. But Beware the Rook is going to be kind of like an old-time radio show where there's audience participation trying to decide, you know, oh, do I know who, who the whatever evil person is? Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, I think that's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, Beware the Rook is uh, this Saturday. Then, of course, Story Slam, which we talked about, is Sunday at 2 um, then on October 27th, the film series uh, continues with uh, the original Halloween movie, which scared the holy heck out of me when I was a kid. But the original Halloween at the Princess Theater on October 27th. Then more great music is coming back to the stage. Keb Mo with the Brother Brothers is October 28th. Film series continues with Rocky Horror Picture Show on the 29th. 
And then there's a downtown Halloween bash happening, I guess, at the Princess and downtown Decatur yes. on the 30th. Uh, do you know any details about that? What's going on with um, that? It's going to be just, you know, uh, food trucks and, and people doing live entertainment in the in the street. But it's a it's a entertainment district. So people go from Mellow Mushroom, you know, down the street, across the street to Josie's and have have some food. But they can come in and get popcorn and partake of beverages, adult and otherwise. Right. And I think last night I saw some um, IV bags hanging with fruit punch in them. So, <laughs> so children can get a chilled juice oh, nice. <laughs> for Halloween. So that's the downtown Halloween bash happening in downtown Decatur, uh, October 30th. Then on Halloween, there's a matinee showing of The Nightmare Before Christmas, which is a favorite movie in our household. And then we get back into some great music. Bruce Hornsby in the Range on November 4th. The world-famous Glenn Miller Orchestra, November 20th. An event coming up on December 7th, which you are pretty excited about, The Wood Brothers. Tell us who are The Wood Brothers and why are you excited about it? I saw them at the Ryman, and they were scheduled to come to the Princess Theater. This was in 2020, famous year for all of dun, us. Dun, 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 dun. And I, you know, got to go up there for a Valentine's show at the Ryman, which is going to church. You know, that's just a fabulous venue. And um, I was, I didn't know much about the music at the time. They are. They, they harmonize so well. Two of them are brothers. They had a gospel background. One of the brothers did. The other one did not. And, and they do a lot of jazz and blues and, and rock all melded together. And it's just um, – and the bass player, Chris Wood, is, is incredible. So that's on December 7th, the Wood Brothers on December 7th. And speaking of phenomenal, uh, you told me that this just opened, uh, ticket sales just opened for Sean Colvin coming to the Princess Theater in February. Tell us about that event. Well, Sean is one of my favorites, and I'm so glad to see um, some females on our stage, <laughs> uh-huh. some more females. Um, she She's just a lot of fun, and she's really, um, she's a songwriter extraordinaire. Her her lyrics and and writing. I mean, she's just really broke into that field in a big way. Um, you know, back in the '90s, I think. But she's she's not stopped since. Uh, I ran through a few of the events. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about all the things that are happening at the historic Princess Theater, you can go online to princesstheater.org. And and finally, Melissa. I mean, th- those were all amazing things that are going on, and we've seen time and time again how important it is to have a venue, a place like that, that has amazing events to draw things in, uh, in terms of creating just a healthy downtown ecosystem. So if you could, let's end our uh, discussion here uh, by zooming out and talking about the importance of the Princess Theater for downtown Decatur. What would the downtown area be like without the Princess and what sort of impacts like economic and social and otherwise do you see when the theater is up and going? Well, it is critically important to have a thriving downtown because the economy really is synergistic. I mean, if if a restaurants are there and, and people are coming, they want to do something before or after. I, I do, you know, you and it's I think people have come to downtowns again. Maybe it's the, the green, you know, not trying to have all the gas where you have to drive from here, there and yawn. And if you have a downtown that has entertainment and it has hospitality as far as hotels and, and places to stay overnight. Our artists stay downtown, and when they do that, that helps the economy, and people come as tourists to the downtown. And it really is becoming a tourist destination. I mean, the Cook's Museum is right there. There's family mm-hmm. entertainment. There's the Carnegie Arts Center, which is actually you know a gallery, and they have showings. And it's all within pretty much walking distance. There was a time when the marquee was dark, and that was in the late 70s. It closed. A lot of people were moving away from downtowns. Uh, movie theaters were in malls, um, mm-hmm. if you can remember, going to the suburbs and um, you know, seeing your movies there and, and walking indoors. And now we've seen just across America, I think it's just a trend where downtowns, they know that if you can get the city center going, then everything concentrically goes out You know, from there. It's like throwing a rock in the pond. That was Melissa Ford Thornton from the Princess Theater talking about Story Slam and other things happening at the Princess Theater. And in case you'd like to take your shot at this Sunday's Story Slam, let's get a few live storytelling tips from master storyteller and legendary journalist Catherine Tucker Wyndham. Be sure to leave room for the silence. 
people ask me every now and then, uh, how do you know what's a good story? Well, that's hard to answer. It's one that almost has to be answered with every audience and every teller. But I don't think you can tell a story unless you like that story. I liked real stories about real people. And so I guess that's why mainly now I tell family stories. Stories that capture our imagination and stories that make us laugh. And back in the recesses of nearly every adult mind are funny experiences that they've had that they need to talk about with their family and laugh about with their family. We don't tell enough stories to make us laugh, and we need to laugh. Little short stories are fine. And don't mind if you have to hesitate a little bit in the story while you think about what you want to say next. I'm inclined to do that, take a little kind of breathing spell and think what comes next. I had that analyzed not long ago. Somebody told me that I had those pauses in my stories because I learned to tell stories from listening to my father who smoked a pipe. And he would stop in the middle of a story every now and then to light his pipe or to knock out the ashes. And it was just natural to have a little pause in the story, and it never bothered anybody. I did have one man who told me that he thought his radio was broken and beat on it till I came on again. But the pause, don't, don't be, don't worry about the pauses. Don't memorize the story. Tell it naturally and, and tell it a little different each time. Doesn't matter. There'll be somebody in the audience who said, I'll tell you that's not the way you told it last time. But stories grow and change with the telling. The main thing is to tell the story that you care about and to tell it with enthusiasm. Let the audience know through your telling that this is something you think is important and you want to share it with them. And don't go back over the story after you've told it, quit. I think that's one of the most important points of storytelling is to quit when you're through, to know when you've told the story and, and not go back over it. And if you're a teacher... Or, well, anybody else, I guess, but teachers are inclined to do this, ask, now what did you get out of that story? Well, that just kills the story. Everybody listening should get something different out of that story. Different pictures painted in everybody's head. Different memories stirred. Because that's what storytelling does. It stirs memories and it reminds us that life is important and exciting. A thousand thanks to master storyteller and trailblazing journalist Catherine Tucker Wyndham, a dear mentor to me and an American treasure. She passed away in 2011, and among her writings, she leaves behind some of the best true life ghost stories you'll find anywhere. We continue to feature her work from time to time in the Sundial Writer's Corner with the permission of her family. You can also visit the Catherine Tucker Wyndham Museum in Thomasville, Alabama, and find more links to information on the podcast page for this episode of the Public Radio Hour at WLRH.org. Look under programs for the Public Radio Hour. Also, thanks to the Princess Theater's Melissa Ford Thornton, Dory Nutt and Huntsville Ballet's Stephanie Brawley Butcher, and Katie Ganaway and Historic Huntsville Foundation's Donna Castellano for being on tonight's show. And thanks to you for listening and making WLRH's original programming, like this one, possible with your support of this community radio resource. I'm Brett Tannehill. Talk to you next time.